Hi, you're listening to We Just Like to Talk. I'm your host, Becky. And I'm Kara. This is a podcast for easy listening about hard subjects. And today's guest is... Selena Caesar Chavan. So happy that you're here. Thank you for joining. You're, by the way, you're our first guest. Yes. <laughs> no pressure. No, start <laughs> off strong. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. We went like high caliber for guests, yeah. you know? Yes. 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 <laughs> That's what you call no half-stepping in your in your jam. Oh. You, like, you just step all the way through. We did a leap. Exactly, yes. a quantum <laughs> leap. Yeah. <laughs> So just to give our listeners some context here, for those of you who maybe didn't uh, hear our previous episode, I gave Becky, for her birthday, uh, Selena's book, Can You Hear Me Now?, which is a memoir. And also, I believe it's a finalist for the Shaughnessy Cohen Prize for political writing. Is that right? Yes, yes it is. Congratulations. I um, discovered the book through, I don't know, some kind of article I saw. I, I, I had heard of you previously, Selena, and I'm just like, oh, great. Like, I want to read this book. I want to, you know, support Black women sharing their stories, especially related to things like politics. And I started reading it and I'm like, I need to give this book to Becky because she loves like memoirs and mm-hmm. like nonfiction stuff, especially about uh, women sharing about leadership and what it's like to like take these leaps in our society. So we had a fantastic conversation in a previous episode all about the book itself. Y'all should go back and listen to that. Mm-hmm. And now we are incredibly honored to have the author herself on this podcast to talk to us today. Oh, well, because I just like to talk. So Excellent. You came <laughs> so to the right place. Board. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. It was so funny too because um I had I had put to read or want to read on on Goodreads when I saw your book come up and I was like, oh, that sounds really interesting. And then Kara surprised me with the book and I was like, no way. Like <laughs> literally a week later, I was like, wow, this is like serendipitous. So awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I'm yeah. I'm so glad that you enjoyed the book because I mean I think what's one of the uh, writer's like worst fear is that they put the book out and people are like, what yeah. is this crap? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's been resonating with people. So I am so happy that people are are liking it. So maybe let's start there because one of the things I so loved about your book, and I know Becky loved this too, is just how courageous you were in being open and vulnerable, you know, talking about your childhood, talking about some of your mistakes that you made, talking mm-hmm. about your experiences with racism, with sexism, the combination of those as misogynoir, um, talking about your experience with miscarriage, like you are so vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Was that difficult for you to make that decision to do that? Like, what was your writing process like in terms of deciding what to share with us? 
So it was a little difficult. That's, I'm not going to lie. Um, there are some parts of the book that I, I still can't read without crying. Mm. Um, and I've read this book a million times. And even my own copy of the book has all these little sticky notes and underlines and highlights. Like if I didn't write it myself, <laughs> I'm like, oh man, that's a great line. I love that. I love that <laughs> here. Like, oh, you are the author. Right, right, right. Um, but I think I think because I wrote the book to be vulnerable, to be in that space, that when I read it in at different sort of points in my life and my joys and my highs and my lows or whatever I'm feeling, some parts of the book have a different, they hit you differently, right? Mm-hmm. Depending on what, so depending on the mood that I was in when I write it, wrote it, and now kind of looking at it and being in a joyful place or being in a you know, sad place or post 2020 place, you, it hits you differently. But there were two reasons why I wanted to write the book. And um, sorry, three reasons. The first is because, you know, Black stories are erased, not just from the history books, but from the consciousness of Canadians. And I thought it was really important that I tell my story in a genuine way, because we know that the medium is the message. And oftentimes when I do traditional media, they splice up my whatever I say or my story into a version that fits their agenda as opposed Mm. to what I really wanted to say. So the medium is the message. And now I am the medium and my message is very clear the way that I want it. And it's and I'm able to document my story in Canadian history in my own voice. The second thing is that, you know, if we want to change spaces, we want to change politics, we want to change business, we want to change how these spaces operate, we can't continue to talk about them or talk within those spaces in the same sort of status quo way. We have to disrupt. We have to talk about our challenges. We have to talk about things that nobody's talking about so that we could change these spaces. So whether it's politics or it's the fact that I had to hide my face in business or whatever it is, if nobody's hearing that, then how do we change how people of diverse backgrounds intersect or interplay with those spaces? And then I think the last reason that I wrote it as as vulnerable as I did, as difficult as that was, was because I wanted to heal. Mm. Like I had a lot of stuff that I was carrying. Um, and by writing it, it was very cathartic process. It was very just liberating. And I knew that if I wrote it in a very vulnerable and authentic way, that other people would heal as well. Mm-hmm. Wow. That is so powerful. Truly. Well, that's pretty dope, eh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very dope. Like, and you can tell when you're reading the book, it it there's no sugarcoating. And it's it's very raw. It's it's totally it's almost like you could hear you. You could hear you, Selena, as just just this is your story. Yeah. A lot of people said that, even when like not doing the audio, but most people who both read the book said I heard your voice in my head and then they bought the audio so there's a lot of people that have the book and the audio because they wanted to know (laughs) what they read was really how I was saying it and they were like yes it's so good (laughs) yeah wow and and speaking of writing how was how was the writing process itself so that, that's interesting because I, I've always said, you know, I'm not a writer. I'm not a writer. Um, so even when my my editor was, you know, working with me, I'm like, I'm not a writer. And she's like, you're a great writer. You're a beautiful writer. And so 
um, what was happening with me was that I never really had a set time. So first of all, there's a contractual obligation with Random House Canada to write, you know, 80,000 words of this book. And that is a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. But for me, what I did was I said, I know I have a story to tell and I'm going to fill this book. So I didn't worry about the times when I didn't feel like writing because I knew I'd get like these bouts of inspiration and I could write a lot. Mm-hmm. So, and those usually came in the evening or late at night when I was, when I wanted to go to sleep or when I was in the shower. Yes. So oftentimes I'd be like jumping out of the shower and, you know, my family was like, why is the floor so wet? Like, <laughs> I just run through the hallway <laughs> with like the soap dripping and everything. And like, I'll be sitting on my bed soaking wet and typing away. And my husband would be like, what are you doing? Like, just shut up. I have to write this part. <laughs> Well, you're what? I'm like, just shut up. And like, <laughs> type and type and type and type and type. And then in the spaces in between, when I wasn't writing, I just went back and edited and refined some of that stuff that I wrote when I had the inspiration. So mm-hmm. I was always writing, but I didn't set a set time to write. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I think creativity doesn't always strike, but it's like when it does, you really, you really just have to take advantage of it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Do you feel, <laughs> yeah, yeah, when or not. Do you feel like going for walks or maybe like reading like other books? Like was that, was did that also strike some creativity within you? So I purposely did not read any other oh. um, autobiographies or any other memoirs or anything like that during that time. So mm-hmm. Michelle Obama's book came out and um, – I read Kamala Harris's book, um, The Truths We Hold, because I, I, I read it sort of towards the end because I really, really wanted to read it. And I knew that the book was going to be talking about um, her, her like accomplishments and stuff. It wasn't necessarily a memoir. Mm-hmm. So I was able to read that. But I, I purposely chose not to read any other books because I didn't want my style of writing to be influenced by somebody else's story. Mm. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I I didn't do that. Um, I didn't really go for walks because we were in like no, I didn't really go for walks. Um, I'm a I'm a real introvert, so I don't really like being outside. For the last year, maybe I've been outside maybe six times. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't go outside a lot. <laughs> like I'm turning into a bit. Thank you, COVID nineteen. Yeah, <laughs> but I am no, much the I, same way. So I, I get you. Right? Oh my gosh. So no, I, I just, the stuff just came into my head and I would start writing. Wow. So do you have more book writing ambitions for the future now? So this is another very interesting question because as I said, I've written this, I've read this book many, many, many times. And every time I get to the end, I'm like, whoa, man, that was so good. (laughs) awesome and I'm like man I mean I want to read more and I actually sit and go okay if I want to read more what else can I write let me and I'm like I have nothing else to say like that That cannot be true though yeah I know there's nothing else from that part of my life that I have to say okay nothing so maybe maybe in 40 more years I'll write Well, I, I will say you're on my auto buy list, Selena. So the next time you decide to put something out there, I will buy it. I'm sure I'm not <laughs> Me too. That is so 
Thank you. I'm right there. (laughs) So nice. Thank you for that. That made that totally made my day. follow you on Instagram and something else that I love about you like is that you're just again you're not afraid to be yourself and I love that you you have like photos of yourself just like having some champagne and cigars and I was like oh those are that's such a good combination and I'm just wondering like where did that originate like is it you know is it something that you do to celebrate or like to wind down because you're inspiring me to do it as well. <laughs> you know what? So let me let me just say where the whole authenticity piece started from. So when I got into politics, I actually thought, you know, you were doing politics differently, blah, blah, blah. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Well, for me, that meant engaging the Selena that was not interested in politics before she became a politician. So I thought, how do I engage that person? And I'm like, well, if I just talk about policy, pre-2015 Selena would be bored AF. Mm -hmm. So she's not listening to politician Selena say anything. And so I thought, well, I could still do these little makeup videos and hair tutorials and things like that while I'm in parliament. And maybe Selena will follow me because... Every now and again, I'll slip in a little policy, but we're talking about, you know, how Ruby Roo lipstick is like one of the best matte colors there is, or like which Fenty brand are we buying next? And we could hook her with that, but then we're going to talk to her about the budget coming out. (laughs) Genius. That's so smart. Yeah, Yeah. I remember... I watched Alexandria <laughs> Ocasio-Cortez, the congresswoman yes. from the United States, doing much the same thing on her Instagram live. She'd just like show us her daily makeup routine for going exactly. to the Capitol. And it's, you want these things because you want your politicians, you want your public figures to show you who they are as a person. And mm-hmm. because I think this is a problem in Canadian politics right now, right, is our politicians are like shapeshifters and they'll just show you whatever face they think Mm -hmm. is going to get your vote instead of showing you who they actually are. Who they actually are. And so one day a lady said to me on Twitter or something like that, you know, Selena, there's more important things you do with your life than what lipstick you wear in the morning. And I was just like, blasphemy. Are you kidding? That is, you cannot. And I was wearing this like navy blue dress you can't wear red lipstick with this dress you gotta wear the (laughs) and i you know but but i think to your point cara the people think that you know that politicians are supposed to be a certain way Mm -hmm. or they forget that we're just human beings and Mm -hmm. and people get disenfranchised from the political process when you could show them that you're a human being and yes I could I could actually study what lipstick I wear with this dress and have a debate on policy at the same time mm-hmm. like I'm I could walk and chew gum so okay. for me that I wanted to maintain that authenticity but then with you know the champagne and sh- cigars uh, that's what I love so why wouldn't I 
you know, show again that politicians, the idea of politics or politicians is not someone who doesn't swear and doesn't smoke and doesn't like all this stuff. Like, hello, we we do do some stuff that's, you know, what regular people do. We're held to a different standard doing it, but we still You're like, still human life. at the end of the day. Exactly. Yeah. I really identify with that because I'm a teacher. And so as a teacher, especially as a young teacher, you're told, be very careful with what you post on social media. Right. And I've had people tell me, like, you're a teacher. Why are you bringing politics into the classroom? Education should be neutral. But I'm like, hello, I'm a transgender woman. Like, my existence, unfortunately, is politicized in this country. So. Mm-hmm. I have to bring politics into my classroom because I'm bringing myself into my classroom. But the, everything about your existence is political. And yeah. that's why I've said during politics, everything about me is political. My hair is political. It's been legislated to death. Like mm-hmm. California and, and some states in, in the United States are just putting in anti-discrimination hair laws for Black women. You yeah. know, like every part of us has been politicized. And so everything I do is a act of protest. So this, this, there's no, you can't talk about politics or you can't bring politics as a person with multiple intersecting identities because everything about you is political. It's been talked about in the, in legislatures around the world. Well, and you are going to be judged, right? No matter what you do, they're going to find a reason to judge you and try to pull you down. So you might as well be judged for being yourself instead of being judged for who you're not. Well, I always say, I always say they're going to talk about you anyway. You might as well have something good to talk about. Oh, I love that. It's so true. Well, and especially on a plat, like not especially, but on a platform like Instagram, where you just see the carbon copy of everyone everyone's doing the same thing and it's just this i don't know like bullshit you know it's right everybody has this front on and they're like i live the perfect life i have all these things yada 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 and to me i just i'm very repulsed by that i don't like seeing that i don't like seeing you know the photoshop and the the face tuning and all that stuff so when i'm Let's say if I'm doing like a story or something, I'm just like, you know what? I'm going to not put a filter on right? and just show who I am. Like my hair is not perfect. I, I don't have any makeup on, but who cares? doesn't matter. Right. If I right. swear, who cares? Right. Well, yeah. you know, I always say like in, in some of the best movies that we've watched, like my favorite Black Panther or The Lion King, at the moments where people are, you know, when, when Simba is lost or when um uh T'Challa is about to lose that that first battle you know what is screamed out to them in those scenes like show them who you are mm-hmm. right like mm-hmm. your most powerful self is the self that shows them who you are not the instagram you know T'Challa's mother didn't say show them the instagram filter version <laughs> <laughs> She said, show them who you are. And like, it's so powerful when you show people your essence of who you are, your everything. And I think that's what's really powerful about this book and what what is the most power, why I call politics the most painfully beautiful thing I've ever gone through is because you have, I had to go through that pain 
to mm-hmm. actually realize that the mistakes and the pains and the hurts added to my strengths and my resilience and my, you know, my joys form 100% of me is mm. the most powerful version of me. And I can have a perfect union with my imperfect self. And that is okay. And that is powerful. Yeah. <laughs> Beautifully said. <laughs> Okay, well, let's get political for a moment here. Justin Trudeau. (laughs) Uh, So right now I'm reading White Tears, Brown Scars, How White Feminism Betrays Women of Color by Ruby Hamad. Uh And it's reminding me of your how you depicted Justin Trudeau in your book. I was honestly shocked by how you you talked about him because Mm -hmm. most people wouldn't be so open and honest because they'd be afraid of like burning bridges. And I think there's almost like this, to use a sexist phrase, gentleman's agreement in Canadian politics, right? Where yeah. even if you don't agree with somebody, you're going to say nice, polite Canadian things about them. So I loved how honest you were about your interactions with our prime minister in your book, how he positions himself as right. a feminist in public, but in private, He's basically full of white tears. And a bully. Yeah. 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 So what I'm curious about is your perspective. Like, do you think this, the the white tears, the white fragility that we have in politics, is that the biggest impediment to making it safer and less racist? Or is there more to it than just the white fragility aspect? Well, I think it's, it's, it's bigger than white fragility. So okay. when we think about Justin Trudeau and how how much of a bully he is and misogynist that he actually is, or more specifically misogynoir, he, you know, it isn't, I think that's only part of the story. We cannot tell the whole story without talking about the delusion of white supremacy that exists on the Hill. Mm-hmm. Right. And I say delusion very specifically because the more you reinforce white supremacy, I think we actually make it a concrete thing that other people believe will continue. And I want to I want to actually disrupt that and call it the delusion or the fallacy of white supremacy. And I say that because, you know, we saw Mumalak Kagak yes. talk on the Hill about her experience and say that you know, she wasn't part of the Liberal Party, I was, and say that we our experiences are exactly the same on the Hill, right? Two people who you could clearly look at, I was the only Black female member of Parliament out of 338 people. She like clearly identifiable by her face. Like there's no mistaking the two of us. Um, and the security is supposed to memorize each and every one of us to keep us secure. If there's an incident on the Hill, uh, you know, when she said, I don't feel safe, I felt like I felt the entire time that people would push me out of the way if there was an incident on the Hill, like a shooting or whatever that's happened before, that they'd push me out of the way to say, let me go save Bill Morneau. Move, lady. Let me go save him, right? Because they don't remember who I am to open the door. They're certainly gonna, oh. not going to remember who I am when there's an incident. Wow. So the legacy. And the reinforcement and the fueling of white supremacy, the the fallacy of white supremacy that exists 
in on the hill, on the parliamentary precinct, that tone is set from the top. The fact that nobody knew who I was as the parliamentary secretary to the prime minister actually is a, I, I wish people would actually study this. Mm-hmm. How is that possible? Why isn't the prime minister actually setting the tone that says, no, you are not going to check her ID every time she comes into this building. That is my parliamentary secretary. Mm-hmm. So so that tone of, I will not stand for this, not within my party or on the precinct is set from the top. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the fragility that we have to worry about. It's the reinforcement of this idea of white supremacy that continues to be fueled. Yeah. Wow. Um, so... On, on that subject, this idea of what needs to change on Parliament Hill, you know, I think we as Canadians, we we receive a very simplistic education into how our parliamentary oh, democracy yeah. system works, right? Do you get and, educated at all on it, though, really? A little bit in grade 10. <laughs> I would say barely. Um, yeah. You know, we got, we got the House, we got the Senate, there's a governor general somewhere in the mix. Um, but, you know, it's a very surface level thing of like, oh, you know, we elect people and then they make our laws. You know, our parliamentary democracy comes from Britain and it comes from colonialism. So, like, are there things you'd want to see, like, the parliamentary democracy process change? Well, so I, I'm, I, I have to admit I'm not a scholar in this area. So I, Neither I are we. Really, <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't really speak to what would change. You know, like, yeah. do we change the racist term of first past the post or do we do you know proportional representation i don't know that's not my area of expertise what i do know is that first of all we need to change the civic the level of civic engagement that occurs um before grade 10 so my daughter when i was in politics did grade 10 civics Mm -hmm. so she was in grade 10 at the time and the first question is Who's your member of parliament? Who's your member of provincial parliament? Your mayor, your regional chair, blah, blah, blah. And the teacher puts up someone who's not her mom. (laughs) (laughs) And my daughter's looking at it going, did my mom like lose something? Like where, who is this guy, right? How is this Beyond confused. The MP, right? So we instantly follow her teacher on Instagram and on Twitter. And the next day he must have been like, holy crap, why is this black woman following me? And it's like, oh my God. And then put two and two together and realize that his daughter, her daughter is in his class. And so I, I say that not to disrespect teachers, but to say that if we cannot have a level of civic engagement that does more than rote memory of who is the member of parliament, who is the MPP, who is blah, 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 mm-hmm. without talking about the broader discourse around civic engagement and start that from an earlier age and reinforce it in every year, you're not going to have the level of engagement of a politician that is required to properly govern our country. Because you're going to only pick from people who have the, the identity-related experience of being educated about politics. So the Trudeaus of the world, the people whose like their their legacy of their family mm-hmm. is liberal or conservative or NDP or whatever, right? So yeah, you're not going to have that just, diversity. Yeah, exactly. It just seems like so much about the system is designed to catch you out with all these little rules or all of these right. little procedures 
And if you haven't mastered that rule book, thanks to the privilege of having like family members and other people around to help you through that, then you are blocked from participating. Right. And if you're not engaging people, so now, you know, someone like my daughter enters this class and the, the, the teacher's like, well, the MP, MP is this person and it's wrong. The information is wrong. Mm-hmm. How important is civics to this country? It clearly isn't important. So why am I even studying this? Why am I even bothering mm-hmm. getting in, involved? Mm-hmm. So now you have a whole classroom of students who's like, this is BS. I don't need to be here. I'm just mm-hmm. going to get my half credit and leave. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, and it has a reputation as a joke chorus. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Meanwhile, you have young Trudeaus who are watching their parents. They're watching that. So they're getting schooled from out the womb mm-hmm. on what, what political discourse looks like, what diplomacy looks like, what bureaucracy looks like. And meanwhile, our kids are getting the, I don't, give an actual shit who the MP is <laughs> education. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so true. It's so sad too that it's almost like we know more about American politics than we do Canadian politics. Right. Well, Which... everything there is sensationalized. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. I'm curious, like, are your kids inspired to go into politics at all? So I actually got my, into politics because my kids were so political with their, you know, model parliament and model UN. Um, I don't know if they'd be interested in running now based on my experience as they were before I got into politics. Mm. However, they are a lot more politically engaged, mm. right? So, so again, your identity-related experience because I was a politician and because I am now, you know, very politically active, my kids are not just knowledgeable about politics because they always were, but now they're really, they're, they're at the intersection of politically aware and political activism. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, that part, will I go into politics at some point? I won't dissuade them from doing so. I, in fact, run their campaign, but uh, (laughs) I I don't think they have that inclination to do that right now. Right. Um, Another thing I really enjoyed about your book, Selena, was your discussion of how you decided to get into business and you started your own business and such. And I'm just curious, like, do you think the experience of starting a business has changed much? since you started yours back in the day? Well, the fastest growing segment of individuals starting businesses are black women. And the when you when you unpack that a little bit, it's because most of them have tried going through like a corporate setting and because of the toxicity that exists within some of those cultures, they leave and they start their own thing. So it's a it's a much bigger question, um, but I don't think that much has changed mm. because uh, you know the the government recently an- announced this two hundred million dollar whatever amount dollar loan for Black entrepreneurs, and so my question is, how do you put two hundred million dollars into a loan program administered through the banks for black entrepreneurs 
when you have not fixed the problem of Black entrepreneurs not being able to access loans through a bank. (laughs) Yeah. It's almost like they wanted to fail, right? Like they created it. That's exactly what I was thinking. Nobody's going to get the loans. And then they just say, well, nobody asked us for the money. Right. And you know, you're setting it up. And I'm just like, I mean, like, is it just me or are you all so fucking crazy? Like, it drives me nuts. Like, you haven't actually fixed the problem. So, did we need $200 million? Probably not. You just need to change the racism that exists within the institution, change their practices, change their their informal, you know, cultural norms that exist within there, change the personal attitudes of people within the bank. You, you, You can't just throw money into a situation and expect something to miraculously change when you actually haven't taken the time to change the process, which causes the biggest barrier. Mm -hmm. So do I think anything has changed in terms of becoming an entrepreneur? No, we have more of us trying because there is, because like in my case, I couldn't find a job. So what am I going to do? I have to start a company. Mm -hmm. Most people start a company because their jobs are so toxic. So they leave. Not much to say. I think things have gotten a lot worse. Mm. Which is sad. <laughs> it, it 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 is sad. I, but yeah. I but and unless we're we're willing to talk, so diversity, equity, inclusion is a multi-billion dollar industry that has not benefited black and indigenous people for decades. And so the challenge is is that many organizations, including our political ones, are stuck on diversity. They don't want inclusion and they don't actually want to do the work that's going to get to equity. Mm -hmm. But the the biggest problem is the actual detour that you have to take that exists in between inclusion and equity. And that is the power structure or power relationships. Nobody actually wants to give up or to open their tightly bound hand that holds their profit, privilege, and power. But they don't realize that if they actually think about equity as creating value and they open their hand just a little bit, they may be able to hold a little bit more of that profit and power mm. because they've they've actually made space by opening their hands. But that overflow can now go to somebody else. That's how equity works. And people don't actually realize it. Another way of saying it is most people think that if you are equitable and you open up the space to people Mm -hmm. that you are going to cut into their slice of pie because there's more people. Right. But what equity actually does is it adds my experience and knowledge to your experience and knowledge and we're able to bake a bigger pie. So everybody gets a slice. And a taste of your pie. And everybody exactly. gets and everybody gets a taste of your because you know I'm adding a little nutmeg to my pie. <laughs> yeah. <Right? Well, laughs> so on that note, like can you think of any initiatives or organizations, like even grassroots one, that are doing a good job of supporting especially black women and girls that you'd like to shout out? Uh, you know what, Operation Black Vote is doing an amazing job from a political perspective of engaging a whole range of individuals with intersecting identities to run. 
um, platform Canada is as well, you know, a profitable um, organization run by women of color, like some powerful women that are just, you know, killing the game. Um, it, it's there. There's a few of them out there that are doing some really amazing things. And it is about scaling those businesses up and then leveraging what they're, what traditional organizations need to do is to look at what their success, what makes them so successful and replicate that. Do you find that a lot of organizations in their values say that they're diverse, they're inclusive, kind of just to put on this front or to be like, quote unquote, politically correct? Well, I, I think and I'm, I'm not sure if they're putting on a front in as much as they don't know how to execute on equity. Mm-hmm. And so this is what I this is what I do with Queens. And this is what I do in consulting. Um, I don't train. I don't do like, you know, anti-racism training or anything like that. I have a I have two MBAs for a reason. It's because I like to help businesses with their cultural transformation. So once you've done the training and once you've done the sort of checkbox type stuff and you've hired your your um, chief diversity officer, you've done the diverse the diversity thing then they often don't know what to do next because mm-hmm. they're like, okay, so we've done it. Now, how do we create a sustainable model that allows for equity? And that's where I come in because you have to do an audit of the processes. You have to then um, embed within their strategic framework an equity lens in everything that they do going forward and an accountability framework that allows them to hold themselves to account when they do not meet those objectives, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. so that perpetuates itself because as different priorities come up, you again embed equity into that. So equity is not something that just falls under HR. Equity is everything that they do throughout the organization. And most organizations don't know how to do that. So it's not necessarily a front. It's just that they don't know how to do it and they don't know how to get that return on investment for, for doing it right. That That's a really interesting perspective. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. It makes me think about how maybe like something we're missing from a lot of like anti-racism or other equity training is this acknowledgement that yes, it is political, but like you just said, it's also structural and logistical. And you need to kind of, you know, if you're talking to a business, you need to talk to them in the language of a business of like, how do we execute this? For sure. Mm. And yeah. also, how do you how do you capitalize on it? So, and I hate when I say that because people are <laughs> like, oh my God, capitalism is the whole reason why we're into this. Okay, but let's just put all that aside for just for a moment. When McKinsey and Company, which is a large one of the largest um, global consulting firms, did an analysis of racial inequity within the United States, they found that racial inequity will cost the United States one to one point five trillion dollars by twenty eight, which is by twenty twenty eight, which is six percent of their GDP. If it's going to cost the United States six percent of their GDP by twenty twenty eight, what is it going to cost your organization? That's what I ask companies. And then racism is good for business. Holy crap. Holy crap. So, so what are you saying that if I'm not equitable, that it's going to cost me? Yes. How much is going to cost you? 
is what we need to figure out. Because every time you lose a um, an employee, anytime you do something that damages your brand, anytime that you um, decide to engage in anti-equitable practices, meaning something as simple as, you know, um, having gendered washrooms. Mm. Hello, it's 2021. Don't you just yeah. want people to wash their hands? Isn't that what you told us to do last year? Just wash their hands? <laughs> yeah. Why do yeah. we still have these bloody gendered washrooms? It's so stupid. Yeah. You want to have people show up as their 100% authentic self, going back to our conversation right at the beginning with their mistakes, their pains, their hurts, their joys, their strengths, and their resilience put together to allow that identity-related knowledge, experience, and expertise to come to bear, which is valuable, to therefore be an asset to your organization. That's how it creates value, by being equitable. People, this is not freaking rocket science. This Mm -hmm. is actual easy stuff. It's a decision. Mm. Damn, the company that I work for needs you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you right now, most most companies do, and it's yeah. It's, but most companies, so I, I'm at Queens, and I'm their senior advisor for equity, diversity, inclusion, and I say you actually don't need me. This is a, and I'm always talking myself out of a job. So um, <laughs> this is a process that once you do it right, mm-hmm. I should be out of a job. Mm-hmm. So I right. should come in, set you up a little bit, put some frameworks in place, put a, something together in your strategic plan, and then you should be able to go with it if your yeah. leadership puts the sacrifice in to make sure that it's sustained. Then I'm supposed to just wash my hands and walk away. Yeah. That's what's supposed to happen. But you guys make this a big academic issue where, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to say something wrong. Right. Or you don't breathe when you say the word black. Like, Hello, I'm black. It's okay. Say the word. Yeah. Oh, it's so true. Um, <laughs> I'm like, where, what topic do we go from here? Because that was just fantastic. I was literally writing down notes. I'm like, this is amazing. I'm like, equity, accountability, need more training. I was like, civic engagement, literally writing down notes. I'm like, this is so, so informative, so powerful. But but that's but that's just the thing, right? This is what happens when people get stuck on diversity mm-hmm. that they yeah. don't actually realize. So, just think about this: myself, the prime minister, the ministers. Like, just as an example, we're all sitting on a bench, right? We all got to parliament the exact same way: a Trudeau, a Caesar Chavan, a Morneau, a Bardish Chagger. We're all sitting on a bench. We're all there at the same time. Now. Some people, in order to get to that bench, they walked a straight line and they sat on that bench. Now, not literally, maybe they had a few curves and bumps along the way, but basically it was a straight line to the bench. Some people had to navigate some serious barriers and challenges to get to that same bench at the same time. Isn't it worth exploring the challenges and the barriers that that person had to overcome and go through to get to that bench at the same time. Isn't that valuable understanding the resilience and the perseverance that is required to get there at the same time as me? Mm -hmm. That is what identity related experience, knowledge, and expertise brings. 
However, when you're stuck on diversity, you're just sitting on that bench and going, oh, we could take a picture of this because we have a white guy, a black girl, um, somebody who's in the LGBTQ2 plus community, somebody who's indigenous, maybe somebody who's in a wheelchair, and we'll take this picture and we'll say that we're like the greatest thing since sliced bread. But you actually haven't engaged those people on the bench enough to know, hey, your richness of experience that allowed you to get there is actually quite valuable to our policy. It's actually quite valuable to, to launching a new product. It's actually quite valuable to the services that we deliver. That's what we need to, that's the point we need to get to, where we're not just taking a picture of diversity, but we're leveraging that diversity to be inclusive. We are shifting our power and therefore creating an equitable space. Yeah, it, that reminds me of like Apple launching their health tracking app without the ability to track your menstruation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, who was at the table, buddy? Yeah, yep. The company that I work for is I'm in software. I do marketing for a software company, and the company itself has diversity in it. But when you look at the upper management. It's all white men and they're kind of like scratching their heads like, you know, why are our employees leaving? Like why? I don't know. It's just. And her CEO wanted to use a quote from Winston Churchill on his LinkedIn page. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. So I I manage his, well, I help him post uh, for his LinkedIn page and I was just trying to get more insight. Like, you know, what are your values? What kind of people do you admire? And then he kept naming men and I was like, okay, but what about people of color and what about women? Like there are so many other individuals, powerful, interesting people that you could draw quotes from and you're just choosing to focus mostly on white men. And it's like, it's mind boggling to me. But, but that too. So see, this is where the fear comes in, right? And why people don't get past diversity because their experience has only allowed them a certain window or a certain amount of imagination, right? Mm -hmm. My experience has allowed me to see a bigger window and therefore my imagination around things is much bigger, right? Mm -hmm. So this is the problem. Now you get someone like that who's in a powerful position, they can make change, but they're so afraid of saying and doing the wrong thing that they'd much prefer to stick to what they know than to try to be be right, than to be called out for doing something that's different. And so Mm -hmm. I often talk to leadership and I'd love to talk to whoever the leadership is in your organization. I would love this too. (laughs) I often talk to them about engaging the unusual suspects. And I say, if you're talking to the same people that you've been talking to over the last five years to provide you on guidance and direction with your company, you're doing a disservice to the entire year of 2020. As an unusual leader, as as a leader in unusual times, you need to develop unusual practices and engage in the unusual suspects, meaning the person who usually sits around the table at the boardroom and doesn't say a word. 
because yeah. you always pick the guy who has their hand up who probably stole the ideas from that quiet person in the first damn place. <laughs> yeah. Right? Or yes. the lady that you walk by every single day because you're so afraid to talk to them because you're afraid to say the wrong thing. The fact so of, of trying means that you're going to make mistakes. And yeah. when you do mis- make mistakes, you can acknowledge it and say, I'm learning. And as I learn, I'm going to make mistakes. And that should be okay. Put yourself in a vulnerable enough position to do that. Yo, have your CEO listen to this podcast. Yeah. Like, and just say, look, Selena, look, I'm, I'm going to tell him, <laughs> look, dude, I want to come in and just help you because the, the organization that does this right Whoever has the first mover advantage on equity is going to kill the game. I am telling you, this is a return on investment like you will not believe. Yeah. ROI. They love to throw that around. <laughs> but no, this is I'm like true. This is like I'm, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a I'm a double MBA business person. Everything for me is dollars and cents. Yeah. Yes, I might be a capitalist. Yes, I might be all the things that people hate. But at the end of the day, this is the this is the existence that we currently reside in. Mm-hmm. And so, how do we? How are we able to manipulate that? to be able to create the outcomes that we want. That's what I want to do with with a, a capitalist framework. Hmm. I love this. I know 100% I'm going to make him listen to this podcast. <laughs> okay, so I know this is like a little bit of a hard left but um so I loved when you were describing like how you met Barack Obama and then later Michelle and I'm just wondering have you like talked to them since your first encounter (laughs) I I have not I have not talked to them but guess guess what I'm doing right now as we are not on camera and I'm able to just Oh, I know what you're doing. You're painting your nails. That is exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> oh, I love this. I was going to say too, when I read when I read how you described, like you saw Michelle like having these beautifully manicured hands and then yep. it, it allows you, because every time you do it, it's like a moment to take care of yourself for some yes. nurture. And now literally every time I paint my nails, I think about you thinking about Michelle Obama. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, so thank yes. you. <laughs> Me and Michelle are going to have our moment to discuss, yes. you know, what what went down that day. But we no, we haven't met after since after that. Okay. But the the lesson of just taking care of myself and just opening myself up to the universe that has been the greatest for my self care of mm-hmm. actually saying I'm going to it be intentional about giving myself. 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to be intentional about giving myself another 15 minutes. I'm going to be intentional about smelling the roses. So I'm going to be intentional about buying flowers. You know what I mean? Like yeah. these intentional moments of self-care. So I'm going to put things in my calendar that I'm going to block off time for me. I'm going to go for walks now, which I didn't do before. <laughs> I'm going to and I got a dog just to Ooh. 
do that, right? I got my little puppy, my little Otis Bean. I, I think um, I've seen, yeah, you've, you've posted about yes, him. Yeah. Yes, Otis Bean. And so, so you do things with a certain degree of intentionality mm-hmm. that then allows you to have that self-care because it, it's practice, right? And if yeah. you don't practice it, if you don't do the things that are necessary to practice it, you won't ever do it. Absolutely. I totally so agree with you, especially during these, like, not especially, but kind of made us all realize like these small moments to just, like you said, stop and smell the roses. It's super yes. important. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. It is. It, it, it is super important. But I, I always say like, even when we're talking about equity or other people loving us or, um, uh, you know, the relationships that we have, if if equ- if you inside of you you're not thinking about equity you're not having the empathetic courage to be equitable inside your organization outside can't be equitable the same way as if you're not loving yourself or in a relationship with you on the inside there is nothing you could do to create healthy relationships on the outside mm-hmm. damn you're speaking Becky's language right there yeah <laughs> This is, this is the conversation we're always having on this podcast. Yeah, really? like you, gotta, you have to love you. If you don't love you, you want somebody else to love you for you? The yeah. fuck? What? <laughs> what you yeah, it's about? like backwards, right? Like you're, at, right. Then you're like asking someone to love you, but you're not doing it yourself. Right. Like a little bit but that's, but that's everything though. Yeah. It's every single thing that we want to happen on this. Look, when we think about climate change, we want to save the planet, but we can't like each other. You want to save the grass, but you can't look at your neighbor and say, hey, what's up? Because you have a big fence up. Yeah. Like, be, just think about the practicality of being able to do these big global things when we have not taken the time to have the awareness of self to do these things within our within our essence within ourself you want to do it outside but you don't want to do it on the inside it is impossible to achieve any form of success so every time I talk about equity I talk about empathy at the center of that mm-hmm. leadership has to have the empathetic courage to be vulnerable to make those mistakes you have to have the love of self to then be able to go out and create relationships Mm. yeah we got to get out of this scarcity mindset as well because it's not helping anyone (laughs) it's it's not there's this is not a zero-sum game any advice for young women out there trying to quote-unquote make it in this world um be authentic Mm -hmm. as long as it's safe to do so so I always have to put a big fat asterisk beside the be authentic because we know um, that there are people of diverse genders and backgrounds that are not safe in our communities. So if it's safe to do so, be as authentic as possible and make mistakes. Like I, I people always ask me, you know, what will you tell your younger self? And I would tell her to just continue to live um, one of my, one of my mantras, one of my things that I always, I always say is that on, on my tombstone, I want it to read all she had left to do was die. I want wow. to live my life 
such that everybody in my funeral is going, damn, thank God she's gone because she was doing everything. (laughs) (laughs) Man, all she had left to do was die. Like, I don't want there to be any tears. I want there to be like the the rock is flowing. People are drinking. There's music playing. Like, it's going to be the party of the year. Like, like, man, was I invited to Selena's funeral? If you were not invited to that... I feel sorry for you because you missed a good one. But I want that, that's what I wanted to say. So I'm going to go back to my younger self and say to her, look, child, man, we live. And look, you, you made some mistakes. You, you've done fucked up a lot of times. But we lived an extraordinary life. In fact, we yeah. went through a whole year of COVID not missing one thing, not saying, you know, out of COVID, after COVID's done, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that because we did it beforehand. We wow. traveled, we saw the world, we, you know, did all these crazy things. Our bucket list was done. So live, young people, live, get the experiences that allow you to then end up in politics and have the empathy to create legislation that's going to help people live life. Cool. Live it. Love that. Okay. <laughs> we will do that. Yeah. <laughs> so before we let you go, Selena, yes. is there anything you would like to promote in addition to your book? Where do you want people to find you? What are you up to? Um, yeah. So everybody could follow me at I am Selena C C I A M C E L I N A C C. Um, I actually just wrote the workbook that goes with Can You Hear Me Now called Maximizing You. It's available on Amazon. I self-published it. It's available on Amazon. And um, it really is all the lessons that I learned but then all of the activities, tricks, and homework that's required to maximize you and allow you to live your life 110 freaking percent. And so um, all of those things are available on my website, selenacc.ca. But I think the most important thing I want to say is thank you to uh, each of you. Um, You know, I've said very often that Ordinary people doing the smallest of actions have changed the world and using your platform to have conversations that allow people to just get a little bit more empathetic towards each other, giving me this opportunity to share my story, to talk to people in a way and and reach people that I may never have reached. That is so remarkable and so important to changing our world. So I just want to say thank you to both of you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, that just made my week and month, (laughs) my year. (laughs) So Becky, where can listeners, maybe listeners who are just here for the first time, uh, where can they find our podcast if they want to subscribe and listen to more episodes? Yeah. I mean, well, there's multiple places. We have a Facebook page. We just like to talk where we post uh, updates and latest podcast episodes we also have an email if you want to reach out to us with any questions or you have future guests that you would like us to have on here uh we just like to talk at gmail.com and we're available on most podcast platforms apple spotify etc <laughs> okay well thank you so much selena for thank agreeing you, selena. to be on our little podcast yes um, 
we both really admire you and everything that you're doing. And we really appreciate you taking the time to expand on what you shared in your book and give us all advice and perspective on stuff. And your insight. Wow. It's incredible. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And keep doing what you're doing because it truly is important.